Welcome back to That's Helpful with me, Ed Stott. I've got a question for you. Do you ever get to the end of the day and think, how in the hell is it five o'clock? What on earth have I been doing all day? Well, this is the episode for you. Dr. Amantha Imber is an organizational psychologist and the author of TimeWise, Powerful Habits, More Time, Greater Joy. And she's also the host of top podcast, How I Work. Amantha, it's so great to have you here. Oh, it's good to be here, Ed. So can you just start by telling me what an organizational psychologist does? It's a good question. Um, and I remember <laughs> when I first learned about the fact that there were these things called organizational psychologists in my undergrad. So I always thought I'd be a clinical psychologist, which is what mm. most people think of when they think of psychology, someone that's helping people deal with um, challenging situations or mental health issues or things like that. Um, and that's what my mum is. So I grew up um, you know, as, as a child of a clinical psychologist. I learned a lot about it. Um, but I always had this fear that I'd go into this career as a psychologist and not be able to switch off emotionally at night, um, mm. which, which, was a, which was a worry of mine. And then in second year, they taught us about all the different fields of organisational psychology, sorry, of, of psychology. Organisational psychology was the one that resonated, which is all about helping people perform better and feel better at work. And I thought, awesome. Like we spend about 80,000 hours as adults doing work. That feels like that could be a really meaningful career to pursue, helping those 80,000 hours be a little bit or a lot better. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what your podcast is about, right? Exactly. Yeah. I, I interview some of the world's most successful people and unpack how are they using their time differently to the rest of us mere mortals to achieve so much with their work. It's so cool. And so much of what you've learned is actually in this book. One of the big things that stood out to me is that we actually, the way we think about our time and the way we estimate how we spend time and how long each task is going to take us is often way off, right? It is. Yeah. We often overestimate how much time things will take. It's called the planning fallacy. Um, so yes, it is a common trap that a lot of us fall into. How do we get out of that? How do we actually start to learn how long each thing is going to take us? Because it's really important, not only when it comes to planning our day, but when we're agreeing what we're going to do, right? Definitely. I think with a lot of uh, psychological unconscious biases that are out there, having an awareness of the bias is a good place to start. So once mm. we know that there is this thing called the planning fallacy where we, um, we underestimate how long something is going to take us to do, we can then go, okay, I've blocked out an hour in my diary, but I'm probably being influenced by this bias. So I'm just going to extend that by 50%. So I'm going to block out 90 minutes instead. And what's the worst that could happen? you might have a little bit of time up your sleeves at the end. So uh, that can be a good thing. But you know what? Like the more you practice estimating how long a task will take you, the better you actually get. So I'm a huge fan of time blocking or time boxing, which basically means booking a meeting with yourself to get solo work done. Uh, and the more you do that, the better you get at estimating how long tasks take. So if I am using time blocking in my diary in a typical morning, 
I'll generally be fairly accurate in terms of how long things will take. And and if anything, I actually overestimate, which is nice because then I've got time up my sleeve. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good tip. And one of the things in the book that was so interesting to me um, was thinking about how we're planning our time and evaluating whether an opportunity is in fact an opportunity and how you can decide whether you want to get up on things there's this idea that you you bring up in the book about the iceberg theory and and using that to decide can you talk a bit about that for me please so I first heard this theory from John Zaratsky who is an ex-Google and ex-Google Ventures uh, designer and he talks about this idea that he uses when he's thinking about whether to say yes or no to an opportunity So he refers Mm. to it as the iceberg yes, where let's just say he's asked to speak at an event that sounds like a super exciting event with a great lineup of speakers and it can be really tempting to just go, yes, I'm going to do it because it sounds exciting. But the thing is that that end product, if you like, that end result, like speaking and getting all the glory at this event is just the tip of the iceberg. But what sits underneath the surface is all the work that leads up to that presentation, all the preparation work that you're going to have to do, the rehearsal, the grunt work, the, you know, toing and froing with the event organisers about logistics. And that's everything that sits underneath the iceberg that we often, um, or underneath the surface that we often neglect. And so we say Mm. yes to this thing, but actually it's going to take us a whole lot more time than we originally thought. And so what John recommends is, Using the iceberg yes to, before you instinctively say yes to something that sounds exciting, have a think about all the work that sits below the surface. And if you still want to say yes, after thinking about all the work that you will need in the lead up, then by all means say yes. But a lot of the time it helps us avoid saying yes to things that are going to take up way more time than we thought. Yeah, and I've definitely done that way too many times. You also talk about the idea of um, the next Tuesday method. Mm. So thinking about the event if it was sooner than it is. Yeah, so I heard this tip originally from Toria Pitt, uh, who I'm sure a lot of listeners will be familiar with, very yeah. um, inspirational woman. And she is someone, not surprisingly, that gets asked to do a lot of things. And when we're asked to do something that is in the far off distant future, it can be easy to look at our calendar and go, well, I'm free in six months time. Um, I'm not doing anything. So it's really easy to say yes to things. But what inevitably happens when that um, particular thing that we've said yes to approaches is that, surprise, surprise, our diary is chock-a-block busy. And Mm. we then can sometimes have that feeling of regret and that thing like that, you know, maybe that event that we've said yes to attending or speaking at or contributing to, we're just thinking, oh my goodness, why did I say yes? And Turiya found that she was having this experience quite a lot. And so what she then started to do whenever she was presented with an opportunity, she would apply what she calls the next Tuesday rule. She says to herself, if this were happening next Tuesday, would I be super pumped to do it? Um, when, you know, obviously next Tuesday, life is probably going to look pretty busy next Tuesday. And if the answer is yes, I would be very, very excited. She will say yes. But if the answer is, "Mm, yeah, I'd feel all right about it, or I wouldn't be that excited, or it would just be a stressor in what is already a very busy week, she says no. Yeah, I think that is so valuable. For me, I even have to think about it 
um, like I have to think if this was happening tomorrow, would I still want to do it? Because I feel like next Tuesday is not immediate enough for me to realize the actual uh, implications of how, I don't know, tedious something might be, you know, mm. like I like to bring it real forward, but I find that so useful, that principle you explained. It's brilliant. Really good. And um, when, when we're making these difficult decisions around our career, not necessarily, you know, whether we might take opportunities, but, you know, difficult decisions about the the career direction we want to take and what we want to do, you recommend having a personal board of directors. What is that and how do we put one together? So when we think about a board of directors, we often think about an organization, generally a large organization that has this group of clever people that are kind of steering the direction of the ship in a way. But when it comes to our own lives, like just like organizations, there will be really big, important decisions that we are faced with that could have a big impact on our own career trajectory. And so uh I heard this tip from Rita McGrath, who um, who is uh, a management professor uh, over at Columbia University, and it's something that she's adopted in her own life. Um, so she has assembled a, a board of um, personal board of directors, where she's essentially reached out to people that she thinks are really smart and will have a different point of view on things to herself, and of course they're external, um, so that so they will bring a more objective opinion. And she will go to them several times a year with big decisions that she is facing. Um, and I think I, I remember she said to me, like, these people don't even know that they're on her personal board mm. of directors. Um, it's not important that it's formalised, although by all means formalise it. But mm. just psychologically knowing that you've got these people in your life and it might only be two or three people that make up your so-called personal board of directors that you can go to with those big decisions that you have to make um it can lead to making infinitely better decisions yeah I think that's so helpful and I think I didn't even realize that I was already doing this but I definitely have those people that I'll go to and you kind of have a good I think it's a good idea to have like a few people because you get a different perspective from everyone don't you and you can kind of it just helps you form those decisions way more easily Absolutely. Are there any other things you've learned about ways in which we can make it easier to make decisions in our career or, you know, tricky decisions that we might come across? Something else uh, that that reminds me of, the idea of the personal board of directors is something I didn't mm. write about this in TimeWise, I think because mm. it had already gone to print when I learned this tip, but <laughs> I, I do really love it. Um, so, so this comes from Professor Katie Milkman, who is a... Uh, professor at, at Wharton um, over in the US. And she um, she came across this research that was conducted by Linda Babcock from Carnegie Mellon University. And it found that women are more likely to say yes to what are called non-promotable tasks. So mm. as the name suggests, these are tasks that are probably not going to help you in your career. They're not going to get you a promotion or a pay rise. They're just things that are good citizenship, like taking minutes in meetings or volunteering to sit on the committee that's planning the work Christmas party or something like that. So women are more likely than men to say yes to non-promotable tasks. Um, and uh, Katie was reading about this research and she learnt that what Linda, the lead researcher, had done is she'd created what she called a no club. And what the No Club was all about is she'd uh, reached out to 
um, a few other, like a, a couple of peers. Um, so I already love the sound uh, of the no club. <laughs> I know, it's like <laughs> such a cool name. So she yeah. reached out to a couple of peers, other professors at business schools, um, and had created a no club. So whenever Linda was presented with uh, something um, that she might want to be involved in, instead of just, um, you know, having that people-pleasing response of going, yes, of course, I'm happy to help, She'll take it to her no club who will give her like a hard line in terms of, no, you really shouldn't be saying yes to this. You shouldn't be spending your time on this because it's probably not going to help in the pursuit of your goals um, and your career. And so Katie, upon hearing this, created her no club, um, her own no club where, you know, she reached out to a couple of peers and anytime Katie gets um, hit with a, a decision to make around, oh, should I you know, do this particular thing I've been asked to and she's sort of arming and ahhing, um, she'll take it to her no club and she will generally take on the advice that her no club say, particularly if they say no, say no to this one. That is such good advice. I love the idea of a no club. I've actually started doing that. I used to always be the person who'd be like, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, I'll take on that. And you, before you know it, you're sacrificing like an hour of everyone's day, of your day for people who never sacrifice an hour of theirs for you. Absolutely. <laughs> Crazy. Um, and so one of the other things that you say is um, great for helping us with quick decision making that kind of um, streamlines our time and our day is mental shortcuts. This is so cool to me. So can you tell me about mental shortcuts? And you have a really fancy organizational psychologist name for this too, don't you? Yeah. Um, so, so yes. Uh, so mental shortcuts <laughs> are generally called heuristics. Um, there they is, are. I think the, the fancy name <laughs> that's that it. referring to there. Um, and I, I like one of one of the um, places I remember where, where I talk about this in TimeWise uh, is with Adam Grant, um, who is uh, also a, a, he's an organizational psychologist like myself. He's over at Wharton, and he also hosts Work Life, which is one of my favorite podcasts. And um, Adam is someone that gets reached out to a lot for um, help, for people to help him. And he literally wrote a book about being a giver called Give and Take. And <laughs> he, um, you know, he, he, he found that like, you know, he's someone that wants to give, but in order to make better decisions about whether to say yes to someone reaching out for some help, he designed a bunch of mental shortcuts or heuristics to, to really think about how could he make sure his decisions were in line with his values. So as an example, um, he will get reached out to for help by a lot of students, um, but also a lot of um, fellow professors and staff at Wharton. And he deliberately prioritises helping students over staff because he says, I went into teaching um, and being a professor of psychology to help my students. I didn't go into it to help my peers. Um, mm. And so he will always prioritise saying yes to helping a student if they need help over helping one of his peers. So that's just like one example that um, that he's created that's a, a shortcut or a heuristic to make it easier, to make quick decisions about who to who to help. Yeah, that's so cool. And in your, um, when you made your heuristics, you're actually surprised by what your values are, right? Like when you actually looked at and decided who impo who's important to you to help, 
um, it kind of changed the way you think about what you might owe to people or, or what obligations you have, right? Absolutely. And I think that that can often be the case when we reflect on the decisions that we're making with how we're using our time and actually overlaying that with our values. So an exercise mm. that I love to do is to every now and then I I look at my calendar. So I'm someone that puts all my personal activities and my work activities into my calendar. I even diarize exercise, for example. Um, yeah. And I love to look at my calendar for the upcoming week and go, is my week and how I'm spending my time in line with my values? So for example, mm. I value friendships a lot. I'm an only child and I always say that friends are the family that you choose. And I know mm-hmm. that if I don't have a significant amount of time dedicated to seeing at least a couple of my close friends, then this is not a week that is going to be as energizing as it could be, nor is it a week where I'm living a life that's in line with my values. Um, so that's just one example. Like, you know, another one is um, I, I exercise four or five times a week. It's a non-negotiable for me. And so I diarize it in each session. I, I put in 45 minutes to an hour in my diary for exercise. And I know that that absolutely has to be there. No matter how busy work or life is getting, that will be in my diary because health is my number one value. If I'm not living a life that is healthy and behaving in line with that, then I'm of no good to anybody else. Mm, I love that. And I think it really helps us prioritize our own values as well as that of the organization or what we're trying to do in our work life too. I I really like that. That's such a great idea. And so you also say that we should stop treating breaks as an afterthought, like they should be diarized too, right? Absolutely. Yes. Um, And that way, like if you, if you, if you think about your, your diary and Mm. if you think about sort of how you're feeling during the day and let's just say you're Mm. sort of working solidly you haven't diarized breaks you're asking yourself the the question of should I take a break can I fit a break in now should I shouldn't Mm. I and you've got this whole like mental dialogue on that can be um you know draining from a cognitive perspective but if you've booked in regular breaks then you don't have to ask yourself the question should I take a break now? Do I have time to take Mm. a break? Do I feel the need to re-energize? Instead, you just do what your diary tells you because you can plan ahead. And I mean, even scheduling in short five or 10 minute breaks. Like I don't mean, you know, go and schedule two big one hour breaks, you know, every day, although by all means go for it. Um, Mm. But um, I I always schedule lunch in my diary um, and I actually use software that automatically shuffles my lunch around like based on where meetings are going. It's really cool. Yeah, it's software called Reclaim, um, which I am loving. Um, But I also, for example, I tend to do my exercise late morning. And so for me, that's Mm -hmm. a mental break and I also find it energizing and it's in line with my values. But it's also a great way of just breaking up um, like my mornings, which tend to be sort of quite intense thinking or research work um, or sometimes Mm -hmm. um, doing interviews for how I work um, with my afternoon, which tends to more be around meetings. So I find if I can exercise late morning at about 11 o'clock, I go into the afternoon feeling very recharged. That is so cool because so many of us now have a lot more control over our days, you know, working from home. So like I work from home the majority of the time now, apart from when I have to go into the ABC to record or whatever. Um, But I think I'm still working the same way as I was 
when I was in the office. So like I was saying to my husband, like, I just feel a bit bored. Do you know what I mean? Like you just, I don't have that social interaction. I'm, I'm not getting that. Maybe that's something I need to schedule in. Like you're saying, you know, move your exercise. Cause I used to just do things at the beginning or the end of the day, but maybe that's, that could be the solution. Oh, I think so. I think if you're feeling something is lacking, schedule it in your diary. So it actually happens. Um, like mm. I, I heard about, um, you know, a couple of teammates of mine, um, cause we, uh, Inventium, my, my consultancy is remote first. So we have no offices. We all work from home or, you know, wherever, wherever the hell we want to work from, we work from. Mm. Um, but it does mean that as a team, um, we do gather once a quarter or face-to-face. We're spread across um, four different states within Australia. Um, wow. But like on a week-to-week basis, um, what a couple of um, people in the team have started doing is, is scheduling, like booking in virtual lunches with other teammates. So, oh, that's nice. um, yeah, so they will get to have lunch together, even though they're in completely different locations and they get that social interaction. And most importantly, it's scheduled. So it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. A hundred percent. One of the game changers for me, um, now I've been working remote is that me and my friend Monique, we now one, one afternoon a week, we go to the state library and it's a really great facility. And we just work from the library for the afternoon. I swear to God, that is my most productive (laughs) afternoon I have the entire week, but it's a game changer, just a change of scenery. So good, Mm. but scheduling it in a hundred percent is a difference. Yeah. Something we do at Inventium actually, because I think it can be great when you are working remotely most of the time, it can be really quite refreshing to work with someone like your state library experience because of that accountability. It's like, we Mm -hmm. can't just go and stand in front of the fridge and like have a (laughs) snack every five minutes if someone's watching us. So something we do at Inventium, we do this once a fortnight um, and we call it a virtual cave where um, there'll essentially be a meeting in the diary. It's every Tuesday from memory. I think it's 10 till 12 and everyone on the team is invited and anyone can log on to the Google Hangout and we all just do our separate work. We're all on camera. We do a check-in at the beginning, at the middle and the end. And it's just kind of, even though we're not staring at each other or anything like that, and there's like a short amount of check-in time, um, you just feel accountable because like I'm on camera, even That's though no cool. one's watching me. So I love the virtual caves. I, I think it's a it's a really useful idea. That's cool. I like that. And that's that goes along that idea, isn't it? That it, like as soon as you're being watched or as soon as you're being monitor- monitored, your behavior automatically changes. Mm. I love that. <laughs> oh, that's good. Okay. I'm feeling energized now. Like there's so many more things I can do to snap out of my boredom. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the other things you talk about when we're organizing our days and understanding the best way to organize our day individually is chronotypes. Can you tell me what chronotypes are and how we can tailor them to us because this just blew my mind when I heard about this. (laughs) So uh, chronotype refers to the natural peaks and troughs in our energy over a 24-hour period and it's underpinned Mm. by a huge body of research into our circadian rhythms. And what chronotype researchers have found is that broadly speaking there are three types of chronotypes. So there's Mm -hmm. larks who are stereotypical morning people, the sort of person that 
like wakes at, you know, five or six in the morning without an alarm um, represents about... That's me. Yeah, that's you, is it? Well, you are, you are <laughs> one of about sort of 16, 17% of people in the world as a lark. Yeah. Um, you're probably very annoying to owls who really have annoying. an opposite Most people, schedule. in fact. Yes, most people. <laughs> they probably think you're very smug. Um, and uh, owls represent about one in five people. They... Um, they sort of like a bit of a sleep in and they actually do their best work at night when most offices are closed. And then everybody else is a middle bird. So they follow the schedule of uh, a lark just delayed by an hour or two. So, um, you know, if, if you're someone that wakes up at about sort of 7 a.m., give or take sort of half an hour, you're probably a middle bird. So larks and middle birds do their best thinking in the morning before lunch. Um, then they will have an afternoon slump, as we all do which is a great time for me doing, doing things like email and less cognitively demanding work. And then they mm-hmm. have a rebound in the late afternoon. But owls follow the opposite schedule where their peak is in the late afternoon, nighttime. Um, mm. And like if, if you want an owl to sort of be at their best, don't book a meeting with them at nine o'clock in the morning because they'll either be <laughs> asleep or just sort of quite groggy. Uh, and so Understanding your own personal chronotype, um, and uh, and I can send you a link to put in the show notes for people yes, that, that want to assess their chronotype. Um, deliberately, proactively aligning your day and the activities that you've got on at work to your chronotype can be a game changer for productivity. Yeah, cool. That's so clever. I love that because I didn't even think about it. And a lot of the time, you know, before the pandemic, we we didn't really have any option. We kind of had to go to work and the meetings were when they were. And, and now I think we've got so much more flexibility. Is there anything you can do if you do have to be in the office or if you have a job where you kind of have to be on at certain times? Is there anything you can do to work still with your chronotype? Well, look, I mean, you know, if if you are in a position where you've got limited flexibility, um, mm. it like ideally you've got flexibility with the tasks that you take on at certain times. So I would say, yeah. you know, try to do your uh, your easier tasks when you're at your lower energy point and schedule yeah. your harder points for, um, you know, harder tasks for when you are more alert, depending on your chronotype. Um, and, and, and if you um, follow the link to the survey, it will give you sort of some more detailed advice around like your peaks and troughs. Um, but also I think educating your manager, because quite often there's more room for flexibility in our schedule than we think. And if you can have a chat with your boss about this is what a chronotype is, this is my chronotype, yet the way my days are structured at the moment is not getting the best out of me based on my chronotype. Can we have a talk around changing my schedule? Mm, yeah, that's such a good call. That's such a good call. Can you be a bit more like Amantha, please? That's what <laughs> we need to ask. <laughs> um, we So we always hear about this um, flow state or being in flow when we're working, which is like when you're really in the zone, right? When When work is just super easy for you. How can we make it easier to get into this kind of flow work? There are a number of strategies that, that I talk about in TimeWise to help get into flow. Um, I'm just thinking which one is a useful one. Well, look, here's something mm. that I think a lot of us can relate to when we're working on something that feels hard and maybe we're mm. experiencing 
negative emotions like boredom or anxiety um, and we're feeling the urge to do something to relieve that feeling of stuckness, which is often going and checking email, hopping onto social media, checking news, something that is not really going to be all that productive. Um, And so there's an idea that I write about in the book called the struggle timer. And Mm. I love this. I use this myself um, a lot, like when I'm really like just wanting to procrastinate and not do the hard work. (laughs) And the struggle timer involves just acknowledging, um, acknowledging how you're feeling. um, Because when we acknowledge negative feelings, it actually helps them um, be less intense. So it helps them dissipate a bit. And the struggle timer involves just setting the timer for 10 minutes. I'm just going, I'm just going to struggle through the next 10 minutes. And if I'm still feeling overwhelmed by these negative emotions like boredom or stress or, um, you know, stuckness, I will give myself permission to take a break and, you know, do something that is perhaps less less um, productive. And what you'll often find is that 10 minutes is long enough to get back into flow and overcome mm. the urge to switch tasks or procrastinate. So uh, I use that one a lot and I just think oh, it's just so practical, um, you know, instead of hopping on over to, you know, some mindless form of entertainment like social media. Um, Instead, I just know, well, I'll get that break if I push through for 10 more minutes. And then after 10 minutes, I generally don't need it. Yeah, it just breaks that habit, I guess. Mm. I have one more question. I'm super conscious of your time because I know how your calendar's planned. (laughs) (laughs) But can you tell me, obviously, you speak to like some of the most genius minds in the world. You are incredible yourself at organization, uh, you know, at psychology, and your whole business is run like super um, streamlined and really effectively for productivity. What's the one most useful thing that you know to get more out of your day or become more productive like what's the game changer for you I think prioritizing deep focused work has been a game changer for me I think in Mm. the age of digital distraction where it's so easy to have email or instant messenger or slack rule your day and you get this false sense of progress when you're in your inbox for many hours but it's not actually helping to achieve the stuff that matters like no one was Mm. evaluated on how many emails they sent, um, mm. unless they're working in customer support, in which case, ignore this. Um, but uh, <laughs> but for me, um, I'm a classic knowledge worker. I um, I make a living through my thinking and the value that I can add through my thinking and um, and and how I you know use research to deliver impactful strategies to people. Um, and for me, like learning how important it is to prioritize my deep focused thinking work, and I do that every morning, um, at least for an hour or two, if not three, has been the biggest game changer for me. And I do that in the morning to be in line with my chronotype. Yeah, cool. Oh, that's so interesting. Thank you so much, Amantha. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I, I want to tell people too that I was so happy when you agreed to have a chat with me because I know how hard you consider each opportunity. So I'm incredibly <laughs> flattered that we're even talking right now. <laughs> that was Dr. Amantha Imber, organizational psychologist and author of TimeWise, Powerful Habits, More Time, Greater Joy. If you want more Amantha on top of that, she's also the host of the top podcast, How I Work. It's excellent. That's all for this week. I've been Ed Stott and I sincerely hope that this has been helpful. Catch you next time.